This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here with co-host Alan Niven. Bonjour, monsieur. That is the quickest introduction I've ever done. Most excellent. How are you today? Always, always good because uh, the show is alive. It is well. It is surviving. We are independent. Uh, I get to do what I want when I want. Last time, uh, well, since we've gone independent, we've done three episodes. This is the fourth. I got to put out two in one week, and we're doing sort of two a week for now. Now, listen, at some point, you know, when summer comes around and it's summer vacation and we're on tour and we're just, maybe we'll go down to one a week, but it's just nice to get it out and, and get stuff out. And I think the one hour sort of maximum is is a good feel and a good fit for the show and of course uh, folks if you do want to support the show do have a paypal page or paypal mitchminute at aol.com and of course anything is greatly greatly appreciated but let's get to today's guest from steel panther the one the only guitarist satchel uh, monsieur niven are you a, a, a well? And, and quickly on the other side, we have Ron Nevison, producer. But we're gonna get, we'll get into that uh, more in depth. But are you a follower, a fan of Steel Panther, a sort of a Monty Python kind of rock group? Does that belie the sincerity and honesty that we've often talked about and espoused on this show? Well, you know, there are plenty of forms that entertainment can take. Um, but maybe this answers your question. I once saw a movie called Spinal Tap, and everybody was laughing all the way through it, and I just sat there with a, a stone face, and at the end of it, I turned a, around... A, to a Stonehenge face. A Stonehenge face. Very good. Thank you. I sat with my Stonehenge face, and then at the end of it, I turned around to the person I was watching the movie with, and I said, why is everybody laughing at a documentary? You know, on the last episode, we did discuss The Dirt and Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm almost willing to say that Spinal Tap is more of a biopic about what really goes on than either uh, those other two movies. I mean, quite literally, right? Uh, you wouldn't have a hard time selling that particular viewpoint to me, I'll tell you. Um, even to the point where the band get lost underneath a rotating stage. Well, that actually happened to one of my bands in Liverpool. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, it was deliciously funny, wickedly funny, and brilliantly observed. And there were so many moments in Spinal Tap when I went, yeah, I know that guy. And yeah, I remember that happening. Um, a, a brilliant movie that has passed the test of time, too. It... Um, it still cracks you up when you see it. There, there, there was another one that um, I really liked certain moments of, I, I thought were brilliant, called Still Crazy with uh, Bill Nye um, playing an English rock and roll vocalist. And that one is well worth watching too. The end of it is a bit, you know, cliche and sipid, but there are plenty of moments in that movie where... <laughs> <laughs> you get cracked up. <laughs> so, all right, let me ask you this then, because the last time Spinal Tap played Montreal, they played the Just for Last 
Just for Last Festival. And of course, uh, if you follow comedy, you know that the Just for Last Festival is one of the largest ones. You know, everybody's played here, whether it's uh, Jerry Seinfeld or or Jimmy Carr or, or, or Jay Leno or what. They've all come. Netflix even has a Just for Laughs comedy series, though I don't know if that's all over on Netflix or just a Canadian Netflix, but should should Steel Panther be out there playing Heavy Montreal and opening for Judas Priest and opening for Guns N' Roses, which they did uh, in 2011, I believe it was, or should Steel Panther be playing the Just for Last Festival like Spinal Tap? Um, you know, it's a shrug for me. Um, the one thing I would say is that, you know, if you're going to have comedy out there, at least have a comedy band and not an actual comedian. Um, you know, especially with established artists, I'd like to see them take worthy up-and-comers out and introduce them to an audience. I think that's how you give back if you've been really successful. You identify somebody who's got qualities and you take them out and you introduce them to your audience. I do, because I think at some point you need to support the the next generation. And you also have to sort of look back and say, hey, you know what? When I started, this band gave me a chance, and this band gave me a chance, and this band that I respected. And so if you're not paying it back or paying it forward, um, there's a certain – I mean, you know, like Kiss right now took out a, 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 um, a painter. And I loved how it was on the poster in Montreal. It was performance artist. And it's like, dude, it's a painter. And uh, I'm not sure I really need to go listen to a tape for 30 minutes while a guy paints to it. Um, he, he, terrific. Uh, Garibaldi is a terrific artist. But I, I don't think it makes a good rock show. Um, so, but no, you, you, you get two decent bands, one with some history and skills and one that's full of calm and 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 coming as hard as they can and you know that makes for a good night out it Um, does that works and here I'll, i'll even go this far there are some bands that are very specific to the european market for example you look at status quo you look at uh, Gothard, you look at Thunder, you look at some of those bands like that, Pink Cream 69, um, God, Pretty Maids. I, could, I mean, I could go on forever. None of those bands have the ability to come to North America and make any noise, and yet they're great bands. They have a great discography. Some of them have 30 years of history. Maybe put them on as a middle band. Maybe say, all right, we know you can. Like Europe. Europe plays in Europe all the time, but they can't come over here and do shows. So maybe you just say, listen... I'm Def Leppard, I'm Judas Priest, I'm Kiss, I'm whatever. Let's have Europe come over. They can't do it by themselves. It'll be a great package. It'll be something unique because you're not going to go see Europe in a, you know, Maryland bar on a Tuesday night. So let at least that. But anyway. Uh, yeah, you and you know, Priest took, uh, took out my first band in 1984. Oh, we had an amazing time for six months with them. And Roger Trinder, their manager, um, I'd been given a challenge by Rupert Perry, who ran the record company we were signed to, EMI USA. And he looked at me and he said, there's really only one major tour going out this summer. What are you going to do to go and get it? And I said, well, I'll go and beg, but what are you going to do to support me? Um, 
and I actually got on, in those days I used to travel as a courier, and I'd fly to London for free because I was accompanying a big old bag full of stuff on an airplane, and I used to fly back the same way. And uh, I went and sat. I, I had no meeting scheduled, no invitation to come and talk to him, but I went and sat on his doorstep for three days until he'd see me. And, you know, he walked in and said, what do you want? And I said, you tour. And he said, why should I give it to you? And I said, call Rupert Perry. He'll back it with marketing dollars all the way. And uh, Roger said, well, I'll let you know. And that was the extent of the meeting. And bless their hearts, Priest and Trinder um, took us out. And we learned an awful lot. And we had a great time. And it was the beginning of, you know, a lot a lot of good things. Um and I think I think the point I'm getting to here is, yeah, the priests and their managers and so on and so forth should still take out worthwhile new bands. Let, let an audience find them. So uh, real quickly, we will get over to Satchel from Steel Panther. They uh, Their last album was in 2017 called Lower the Bar. They are rumored as they say to be making a new album and we uh, do talk to satchel about it and it's i told him that he should call it the since they lowered the bar last time the new album should be called the abyss or something like that because you know why not they are also playing heavy montreal this uh, july so that'll be uh, that'll certainly be entertaining and uh, without further ado the one the only satchel we are speaking with a Satchel from Steel Panther. Good day, sir. Pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure to be here. I can't can't believe I'm here. It's really weird. It is, and it, it is certainly a great place to be here on on Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. So, let us talk about the band. You are coming to Canada twice, um, it, which is amazing that that immigration will actually let you come over the border. But uh, you've got a three night run in uh, Vancouver at the Commodore, but then uh, more importantly, and, and I don't mean any to be uh, disparaging to the Vancouverites out there, but uh, you are coming to Montreal for heavy Montreal, and of course, when you think heavy metal, you think Steel Panther. Well, I mean, we we, we embody heavy metal, and, and we love Montreal, and we love playing there, so we can't wait to do that. That's going to be a blast, uh, but we love Canada in general. I mean, like, it, I think people just rock harder up there than than they do down here in the states it's for some i mean there's a lot of rock fans down in the states too but but canada just goes off you know it's it it competes with any market in the world that we go to it competes with europe or competes with australia and there's a lot of rock fans in europe obviously but but canada still loves to rock i mean love heavy metal so it's great great for us Right, and of course, uh, the ladies are better looking up here. So that's that's another a lot of really hot Canadian girls up there, and they're very very loose as well. So it's great. Lots of things uh, to cover. There are rumors of a new album. Last one out, of course, 2017's "Lower the Bar." Uh, I'm assuming that this time you're going to head down to the abyss. What is sort of the plan on a new album? And how is it coming along? Is it being recorded? Uh, talk to me about new music from the band. Well, we've got a, we've got most of the music already recorded. We're just uh, we're just about to start laying down vocals pretty soon here, and um, 
you know, it's just, it's not easy to do records when you're a touring band and that's what we are. We tour all over the place. And so in order to record, you kind of have to do it in between tours. And sometimes that's not easy to do because, you know, especially with an old singer like ours, our, our singer's like what, 90, 97 years old now. And, um, he's, you know, his, he gets tired. It's like, you got to wake him up. He takes naps. Sometimes he takes naps on stage. It's crazy. I have to wake him up in the middle of songs. Um, but, but we gotta, we gotta get him to, you know, record the record in between the tours. So, you know, his voice is not always in tip top shape and, and, uh, but I think that we'll probably be done recording the vocals, you know, over the next month and a half. And, and, uh, Hopefully we'll have something out, you know, this year by the end of the year. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that. And of course, uh, Michael is a, is a great singer. I mean, I'm so glad he's with Steel Panther. I mean, imagine had he joined one of those Sunset Strip bands like L.A. Guns or something that it would have been just completely wasted in terms of time and effort. But uh, it he would have ruined his whole life. He, he would have it, it. He would have been the. It would. Have, he would have been the butt of so many jokes. Um, but speaking yeah. of uh, members, Lexi Fox, uh, of course, what did he do? He he went into um, sex uh, sex counseling or sex rehab because of his life of a debauchery and pro- uh, proclivity. Is yeah. he still part of the band? Is is he? I mean, bass players are are really simple to replace. I mean, it's not like they do much. Um, yeah. Where are we with Lexi? Well, fortunately, um, Lexi is still in the band. He, he went through sex rehab for a little bit. You know, we, we, we found, found out he had an addiction to uh, gerbils and I don't, I don't know where that started or how it started, but, but we, we finally got him able, he's able to have sex without hurting animals. And I think that was an important part of the rehabilitation process. And, um, by the way, He's you're speaking as well now. as I am today, which is which is good news. Um, yeah, and 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 uh, gerbling is not is not recommended, folks. Um, real quick, yeah. uh, earlier or not earlier this year, but last year, you put out a, um, uh, a pedal called the Pussy Melter. Um, yes. Talk to me about that. Was that actually laboratory tested? I mean, were you actually melting pussies? Because that sounds dangerous. Well, it, it did actually, I mean, there are, have been many cases of pussies actually melting, not just, you know, hearing the pedal, but actually just being around it. It's, it's, uh, it, I think it's made, it's got actually little bits of plutonium in the actual pedal chip itself. Um, it's a fantastic pedal though. And, and, uh, it doesn't matter how many pussies get melted. It actually is in high demand. A lot of, a lot of guitar players are willing to, melt a few pussies in order to make their rock scorching. And, um, so we, we sold a limited run of those and they are in such high demand that, that people are still, they're trying to, you know, some people bought some and are, and are trying to like unload them. Like, uh, I heard we got banned from the, the site reverb recently, which, um, I don't know why they banned that pedal. Cause it's, uh, it's one of the greatest pedals ever made, but, but, um, Apparently that that was that just added to the controversy over over that pedal, and it's in more demand than ever. But we do have a new pedal out called the Poontang Boomerang, which is also an amazing delay pedal. And uh, you know, since people don't buy music any anymore, we're just going into the foot pedal business. Seems well, to be working for us. Yeah, it seems to be working. So so talk to me about 
putting out the pedals and and actually the work goes that goes into them. Are you sort of in there with uh, the company talking about specifics and specs and all this and all that, or do they come to you with a pedal pre-made and say, "Hey, would you endorse this one?" And if so, okay, let's name it together. So, uh, talk to me about. Uh, sort of the process and why that company and 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 just talk to me about the pedals. I'm not a, a gearhead myself, but I know some of my listeners are. You know, what do they get from the pedal and how do they come about? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm not a gearhead my, myself either, but but the the Pussy Melter started with with uh, TC Electronics. I I went to they came to me and really just wanted me to to do a tone print one of their pedals and um and that's sort of how that started i just named you know i gave them a sound that they put on one of their their pedals and then i named it and then and then you know of course it offended somebody so they yanked it but then we were approached by a company who said well if they don't want to you know profit from the pussy melter we'll we'll go into business with you and let's make a pedal and i said well that's a great idea and um Instead of it being a delay, I think it should be a distortion pedal because, you know, we want it to melt pussies. And of course, when you think about melting pussies, you think about distortion pedals and high gain, you know, guitars. So um, I basically told them what I wanted from the get go. And they, they, you know, basically they, they had a guy who engineers um, chips for foot pedals and he took what I wanted and and put it into a chip and then showed me what he had. And to be honest with you, it was, it sounded so good out of the gate. It was, I didn't, I didn't have to do any real, real further changes to it. And, um, we basically designed the look of the, the pedal from, from, uh, from the ground up. And, um, so we were, we were heavily involved from the, from the development of the sound and the look, you know, you know, all the way through production. So, um, and we did the same thing with the, with the, uh, Puntang delay, delay, Puntang boomerang delay. We, uh, I knew what I wanted. I knew what I, what I, I knew what I didn't want. And a lot of what I don't like as a player is, um, I don't like pedals that are super complicated with like too many options. Cause then you can just fuck shit up. So right. Plus like you got to do uh, your makeup while you're playing. You don't have time to be pedaling around. I mean, right. right exactly. You know, you know, I mean, you know, I, you know, personally, I, 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 I want to look good. I want to, you know, I want to make sure that I pose well. Um, and for me personally, I, I like to write songs. So I, I would rather rely on a, um, on a really well-written riff, you know, or a cool chorus than, than the actual, um, having to, to, you know, then focusing on the, the effects, but, but the effects are fun. Like they're like the icing on the cake. You know what I mean? But I like them to be simple because, you know, if, if I'm going to use a delay, I don't want it to, I don't want it to do too many things. I want it to do a few things really, really cool. Right. Uh, same thing with a distortion pedal. Is it a good idea though to delay Poontang? Don't you want that right away? Unfortunately, I think it's, uh, you know, the Poontang, the Poontang boomerang is, it's the p- pussy that, you know, it just keeps on coming back. Sometimes to the point until you just don't want it around anymore. So I, and, I got- you know. I yeah, get you can that. Always, you can always, you know, unplug it, I guess. <laughs> well, I guess you could. Now, um, let me just quickly go back in the discography. Somewhere around 
2011, Balls Out comes out. But at the same time, um, this great band, Judas Priest, is uh, searching for and looking for a new guitarist. You know, as as Steel Panther was developing and, and making its mark, did you ever consider maybe moving out uh, to another band and maybe auditioning for another band? Because just imagine how incredibly awesome it would be to look over and see the metal god standing next to you. I mean, what, wouldn't that just be? Uh, can we fantasize for a minute? Wouldn't that just be fantastic? It would. You know, he's it, Rob the Halford is an amazing, amazing singer. But I gotta tell you. There's no singer I'd rather be in a band with than than uh, than um, Michael Starr. I think Michael Starr is is the greatest heavy metal frontman out there right now. Yeah, and, uh, he's got a great great voice and he's a great performer. And uh, I am I feel lucky to be in a band with Michael Starr. He's a great singer, and you know, for me personally too, um, I don't know if I w- if I could be in a band like priest at this point or, or any other band, because it wouldn't, I wouldn't have the freedom to write what I, what I write. So, and I, and I love to write songs and, and steel Panther lets, you know, allows me to be as creative as I want to be. And I don't ever feel like, uh, I can't put anything on a record. Cause right. you know, I think if I, if I was in a band with, um, any other group of guys, it would be, <laughs> there would be there would be a lot of questions about some of the song material that I bring in, but we we just sort of roll with it, and, and our fans love it that way, so it's good. Yeah, it, it definitely would be different, and, and of course, Michael Starr reminds me of of a very young David Lee Roth, so you can't go wrong with that. Both great frontmen. Um, these days, there are, there is of course a band out there on the road uh, doing a farewell tour. And uh, the, the the conversation on the internet is about backing tracks and about them cheating and lip syncing and all that. First of all, uh, knowing that Steel Panther is a live live band, I mean, it's not like you have just a guitar player playing or anything like that. What's sort of your take on b- the use of backing tracks? Is it a no no, or does it is it okay at some point to have some enhancements for parts that maybe you can't play live? Well, I mean, we, we use backing tracks and we, we put keyboard, play, keyboard parts on there. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather have a tape with keyboard on it and actually have to deal with a live keyboard player because keyboard players are so geeky. And, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather just, you know, have a backing track than have to ride on a tour bus with a keyboard player because I don't think I've ever hit it off with any, any keyboard players. They think, line, like, you know, Leonard in linear linear how do i say it linear linearly linearly i can't say it straight straight I, up or straight, yeah. straight up and yeah it's straight across the keyboard i'm like all over the neck and these guys you know a lot of keyboard players aren't used to having sex with girls you know this these are conversations that you can only have with like you know the the guys in 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 my band bass players and drummers and and singers but once you bring keyboard players in they're usually want to talk about like you know things like keyboard patches and i i can't do that but but i don't mind using backing tracks if somebody wants to use a backing track you know i think it's 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 up to the band like how much they want to use though like like you know for steel panther you know we we do the vast majority of stuff is completely live i've never put a solo on tape and 
and Michael sings 98% of the stuff live. And, and there might, there's a few backing vocals on, on tracks here and there, but, but uh, most of it's live. And, and I think if, if bands wanted to, um, you know, it's, it actually takes away your freedom when you have something on tape. So you can't improvise at all. And a lot of what we do live is, is improvisation. So we need to have that freedom. We can't be locked down to a tape hundred percent of the time. And, you know, it's, it's same thing for the lead vocals, same thing for my guitar playing. And, uh, you know, but the good thing is, you know, I think it's, you know, we, we like to perform our songs like they sound on the record. So, you know, if I put a, a rhythm guitar part on, on a track underneath a guitar solo, that's not because I've, I'm cheating. That, that's more, it just helps it sound like the actual record. But the guitar solos itself are always live. So, um, you know, there's, there's little things here and there. I don't mind using, using tracks for that kind of stuff. But, but uh, there are some people that, that are purists that don't like using any tracks at all. But I think for the majority of the fans out there, um, you know, people want to hear, people do want to hear it sound like the record. And, you know, sometimes when you've got like one guitar player and, and you want to have like a harmony, if I want to have a harmony on my guitar, I just play the harmony on a track and then I can play the other part live and it sounds like the record. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, want to hear it sound like the record. So in, instead of missing certain parts. Right, which makes sense. But but do you ever get tempted, like when you get to a to a, a small sort of city, like you know Thunder Bay, Ontario, just say, ah, eh, just play them the record tonight, and we'll just stand there. They don't really need us to. <laughs> I mean, does that happen? You know what? There 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 have been times when you know, especially when you're in a band and you get sick and you like eat some bad fish at a you know at a at a buffet and and you're actually sick and you you have a hard time performing. I've been. I mean we actually did a show one time in, in, uh, I'll never forget it. It was in Wolverhampton, England. And I, uh, I was so sick. I could barely move, but I did the show anyway. And we were in the middle of Asian hooker and I walked over to the side of the stage and I projectile vomited for about 10 seconds into a trash can, like during the solo of, of Asian hooker, which was really hard to play. And I didn't miss a note, and, and uh, so I was pretty proud of that. That's great. Now, um, just real quick, for for you by yourself, uh, Satchel, any desires to go out there and do a solo album or a solo project or to go guest on other people's albums and, and just make a mark away from the band? Well, you know, I, it, there may be a, a point where I do things with other people and, and put other music out there, um, but... But to be honest with you, I, I love, 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 love Steel Panther. You know, we've been playing together for a long time, but I, I still enjoy every time I get on stage with those guys. They are, um, there's no other band I'd rather be in full time than Steel Panther. And, and, and uh, we enjoy every show that we do. And I think, you know, we all have a, a great work ethic. We go out on stage and, and we try to entertain people to the you know, best of our ability, no matter what's happening. And when we leave the stage, the vast majority of the time, we feel like people people got the best show they've ever seen. So um, that's do. what we're going to keep on doing until we break a hip or die of a heart attack or something. 
Yeah, and hopefully that won't be soon. Uh, just uh, And then we'll finish. I, I see our, our 20 minutes are almost up, but you've had a chance to open up for some of the greatest bands out there, Def Leppard, Motley Crue, uh, Guns N' Roses, J- Judas Priest, and others, and, and of course, festival dates. Uh, talk to me about those those occasions and opening for some of the bands, and, and what would be a band right now that if you had the chance or opportunity open for that you would say, yeah, we're in, we want to play with them at least once before it's all over. Wow. That's a, that's well, I can tell you right off the top of my head, that would be Iron Maiden. I would love to play with Iron Maiden, like just do one show with them. I don't know if that'll ever happen. I'm a huge Maiden fan and uh, you know, Maiden doesn't need, they don't really need opening acts. So I think they do when they go tour, they, they like, um, I know that Steve Harris's son has a band and they let them open up and, and a lot of, a lot of times that's just like purely, you know, who, you know, you know, you know, but, but I love Iron Maiden. I'm a big fan. I'd love to open up for them someday, but, but um, you know, all the bands that we have opened up for Def Leppard, Motley Crue, you know, it's, we, we grew up listening to those guys and we love all those guys. You know, we butted heads with Motley Crue, but it didn't really matter because you know, I'm always going to be a Motley Crue fan. I love those guys. And I love Def Leppard and, and, um, and Guns N' Roses, you know, when we played with them, it wasn't all the original guys, but it's, it was still, you know, cool to be able to open up for Guns N' Roses, you know? And, um, you know, but I think it's, it's funny. Like it, when you're in a band, you know, I, I know there's a lot of bands that, that want to open up for, for big bands, but I think the goal for any band should be just to to headline on their own and draw people. You know, you want people to like you enough to want to go see your own show. And, and we're definitely fortunate enough to be able to, um, you know, play to our own crowd and we don't really have to open up for, for anybody. And that, that's like, that's the goal every band should have. Cause I know a lot of bands that, that are constantly opening up for other bands and, you know, that, that's, gets you in front of audiences, but it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean you're making fans. And, and uh, that's what you really want is you want your own fans ultimately. Yeah. And you, you certainly garnered enough. Now, uh, one of the greatest things, and I'll finish on this cause we're out of time, but one of the greatest things that uh, steel Panther has ever done, or you've ever, you've ever done um, other than this interview right now, uh, yeah. Is well, yeah, of course. This, this is probably top three. But you did a cover yeah. of uh, Cheap Tricks, "She's Tight," and of course you had Robin Zander there. Uh, just as a fan, because I think you and I are both around the same age group and stuff. Growing up in the seventies and eighties, and you would see Aerosmith and Kiss and all that. What was it about Cheap Trick that attracted the band to them, and, uh, you or the Steel Panther to them? And what was it like to not only cover the song? but have the guy who sung it sort of standing next to you in the video and wink, wink. And here, what was that like to work with the voice of rock? Well, I'll tell you for me personally, it was, it was, it was a really cool experience. And we, we heard that, that Robin was willing to sing on it. That's what sealed the deal and made us want to record it. Cause, cause I'm a huge cheap trick fan. I think they're one of, you know, one of the best rock bands from that era. And, uh, and Robin Zander is one of my favorite singers of all time. And I think Rick Nielsen wrote, was such a creative songwriter, such a great songwriter. And their songs had great melodies and really interesting arrangements. And they were just, they were just a great band. It's not necessarily heavy metal, but it's rock. 
and um, like the first Cheap Trick record, you know, the one with Elo Kitties and and uh, Mandicello. Hot Love. Great. You should yeah, have done Hot, Hot Love. Love. That would have been great by you guys too. Yeah, and, and you know what? That was the other thing is that their sense of humor, like like she's tight. That was that was kind of right up our alley. So we don't normally do covers, you know, on records. I mean, but we wanted to put something out before the record came out. And that was just a fun song to do. We didn't, we didn't even really have to rehearse it. We just were in the studio and we, we all knew it already. And, and it was fun to do. And, and Robin's an awesome singer. And we just love those guys so much that it was, uh, it was kind of an honor to do. And it was great to have them in the video. So. Oh, it really was. And uh, I, I think I just lied. I, f- I completely forgot to ask you about Steel Panther TV. So if, if, you, if you have a couple of seconds, maybe just talk about Steel Panther TV. You can, of course, head no over worries. to... Yeah. Pardon me? No worries. Okay. Yeah. So just, just re- real quick on Steel Panther TV, obviously folks can head over to Steel Panther TV. There's a, there's a Steel Panther Rocks, there's SteelPantherPodbean.com, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but just quickly talk to me about that. Cause I've had a chance to, to check out a few and uh, it evokes Steve Martin, you know, wild and crazy, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, we did, we started doing steel Panther TV about five years ago when we were doing all you can eat. And a lot of our fans loved it so much that when we stopped, um, there was, there was a lot of people that were just clamoring for us to do more. So we decided to start doing it again and it's really fun for us because, you know, if you've ever seen Steel Panther live, you know that we're not just an awesome band with, with awesome songs and awesome musicianship. We're also a really fun, entertaining band to see because there's, you know, there's stuff in between the songs. There's a lot of banter, a lot of comedy, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, you never really know what's going to happen because there's a great chemistry between the dudes. But that's sort of what Steel Panther is all about. We just go in front of a camera and there's a lot of stuff that we are able to do in front of a camera as well and put it out there on the internet for people who are fans of the band who don't get to see us on a regular basis, you know, in a lot of countries. And I think it, I think it's good, you know, it's good. It gets, it, it makes people who are fans, um, it endears them to us even that much more because we're, uh, we're, a, we're a fun group of guys and we, we have a great time doing that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I'd like to say that we're, you know, I think we're, we're pretty damn entertaining on it. So go check I, it out. I, I agree. And maybe it'll lead to a, a steel Panther movie and then you could be the next Marvel superheroes or something. Uh, Satchel, Always a pleasure, and yes, I have seen the band live many times, and I will be uh, at the uh, Heavy Montreal. I'll be backstage, uh, probably serving you lunch or something, but still, I'll be there. Uh, it'll be great. Um, merci, as we say in Montreal. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Mitch. Good to talk to you, man. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Very big thank you to a Satchel of Steel Panther. Now, of course, Alan, you you heard that Russ Parrish, who is Satchel, has to stay in character when we're doing the interviews. But uh, if you're a, a deep rock fan, you might have heard the little nuggets I was throwing in there. Of course, when we were talking about the singer, 
Michael, who actually is Ralph Sens. Ralph sang on the L.A. Guns album Wasted, and so I made a little Wasted L.A. Guns reference in there. He was, of course, in Atomic Punks, which was the Van Halen tribute band, so we made a David Lee Roth reference. Uh, as far as Satchel, he, of course, played side-by-side side with uh, Rob Halford in his solo ventures, so we made a, a... Anyway, so if you go back and you know all these little nuggets, you can sort of go back and go... Oh, wasn't that cute? Weren't you trying to be cute? Uh, there's other stuff going on, but uh, there you go. So if you if you just listened to it for the first time and didn't pick up the references, go back because every single question was worded with some kind of uh, reference to the past and, and other stuff. Um, speaking of the past, Ron Nevison, monsieur, producer extraordinaire. Absolutely. Um I I put him basically in a, in a you know in a category with people like Tom Werman, um, a very a very precise ear, um, different strokes to different folks. You know when I'm working on a record, I'm looking for the little bits of grit, the little happy accidents. The, for for me, it's simple: the art of perfect recording is to know which imperfections you have to leave to keep it real and to keep it spontaneous. Um, I, I tend to go in a slightly different direction than the likes of Ron. Um, but my God, you know, he's made a lot of fabulous records. An incredible amount of uh, records. Uh, and I'm just going to give you some, some highlights. So Thin Lizzy, Nightlife, UFO, Lights Out, um, UFO Stop right there. UFO right lights there. out was not a classic. Okay, well you got a point. It no, was, no, no, it was, no, no, it was no. good. It, it's, one, it's one of the all-time classics, and it, it, sometimes I, I I look at the output of a band and just ask if anybody made a perfect record for who they were, and that for me is the perfect UFO record. I freaking love that record. Um, and Love to Love You, I think, is just a monstrous track. I just, it, it gets me every time I hear it. It, it really, it, it does. I mean, the UFO stuff was, was incredible. And, you know, uh, we do have, a, I'm sorry, my brain is just going here, but I do have a, a Michael Schenker interview in the can uh, where we're going to talk about UFO. And so that'll be up in a couple of weeks. Uh, so just to keep, keep an eye out for that. But, uh, you know, let, let me just... I'm just going to keep going here. We've also got UFO Strangers in the Night. And, and by the way, I'm skipping a, a load of, of, sorry for the language, but a, a, a ton of, of albums here. Uh, we have Michael Schenker Group. Uh, we have Heart Heart, Ozzy Osbourne, The Ultimate Sin, Heart Bad Animals, uh, your favorite, Kiss Crazy Nights, uh, The Damn Yankees, uh, Out of This World with Europe. So it's not just sort of uh, melodic rock or hard rock. He, he's done... He's done. Uh, he did Firehouse Three, by the way. I just mentioned that because um, uh, Bill Leverty is a great, great friend. Vince Neil, Exposed, which uh, came out on April twenty seventh, which, as we know, is Ace Frehley's birthday. Um, and we've been talking about the Dirt a lot. But just all kinds of bands, all kinds of of um, styles. Uh, he, he's... If I were, if I were going to uh, give you an immediate um, reflexive response to the name Ron Neverson. 
I think I would definitely say great producer of guitar players. And we stole his engineer for that. Who uh, for, uh, was that? Clink for an album, Mike Clink for an album called Appetite for Destruction. Very much part of my thinking was, if Clink's his engineer, then I want him working with Slash because they are really great at working with guitar players, and they get fabulous guitar tone. And you know, maybe I, you know, I lucked on an acorn in the forest that day with my thinking because I think that worked out. It really did. And he also worked, and here we go, on a uh, Grand Funk Railroad album called Bosnia. And uh, all the songs there were written and composed by Mark Farner. And guess what? I have Mark Farner coming up on an episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Isn't that cool? That is extremely adept of you. In fact, you know what? Let me let me take a moment here because I have some interviews that are good to go. Uh, and so I'll, we've got Desmond Child coming up on an episode. We have got Jeff Keefe, like I said, uh, Michael Schenker, uh, Mark Farner, Nils Lofgren, Robin Trower. Uh, for fans of uh, Canadian rock, Danko Jones. We've got Glenn Sobel, Doug Aldrich, Carrie uh, Kelly, of, of currently who's a Night Ranger. Just an incredible amount of shows, and so that's why we are going to do these sort of one-hour episodes, two episodes a week. And listen, once we run out of these uh, interviews, there will be other interviews, but maybe we'll have to go down to once a week. But for a while here, we're going to sort of get all these interviews out, because who doesn't want to hear um, Ron Nevison? Who doesn't want to hear Bob Clearmountain? Who doesn't want to hear our part two with uh, uh, Jim Valance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? So... We are going to sort of speed up the process, uh, do sort of a one-two, one-two, or a one-two punch until we get caught up. But uh, let us get caught up with Ron Nevison, uh, his, his discography, his his uh, just you just look at it. I mean, where did this guy go wrong? He just doesn't. If he touches it, you just know it's going to be great. He he's definitely of the highest standard. Do you consider Strangers in the Night as the greatest or one of the greatest live albums ever? Or or is it sort of like, you know, uh, Kiss well, Alive, I, Frampton Comes Alive, um, Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, Tokyo Tapes, and then UFO? Well, it, it's become almost Catholic that those who are into this kind of music um, always have great things to say about strangers in the night and it, and it is really really good but you know there are a lot of other live albums of you know not necessarily that kind of style or that kind of content um that i might have to put in the lifeboat if the ship was sinking before that one um you know but i will tell you without a doubt anytime i go to ufo it's always lights out in london yeah it really is it really is and uh before we get over to ron uh, folks if you head over to uh you, you know i've given you the paypal address but you can also write to me there you've just heard the list of guests we have coming up why not just send me an email and say who would you like to hear next i'm actually kind of curious and i also have a guy on there named ron wisco who was in foreigner in the late 90s and he talks about the unreleased foreigner album and shares uh, when it was recorded, why it was recorded, why the recording was stopped and all that. So I have that coming up. 
just an incredible amount of great content coming your way. So uh, head over to uh, MitchMinute at AOL.com and just say, hey, you know what? I want to hear, you know, Danko Jones and Glenn Sobel next. Or I want to hear uh, Mark Farner and Robin Trower next. And uh, let's see. Let's see if we can uh, take your request and put an episode together that makes sense. But uh, right now, it is though the one, uh, the only producer extraordinaire, Ron Nevison. We are speaking with producer Ron Nevison, and of course, he has had a hand in pretty much every band and every album that is worth listening to, including UFO, uh, Jefferson Starship, Michael Sinker Group, Survivor, Heart, Ozzy, Kiss, Europe, etc., Damn Yankees, Firehouse, and Bill Leverty. Uh, Mr. Nevison, Ron, pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. Likewise. There, there, there is so looking, much to looking, looking forward to this. Yeah, and listen, there, there's a lot of of deconstructing and a lot of of uh, you know fan geekdom that that's about to happen. But before that, you are writing an autobiography. Um, what can first of all, when can fans expect that, and what can fans uh, expect from it? Is it the, the the story of a young boy growing up, or is it the story of I started in the studio on whatever August first, nineteen seventy three, and let's go? Is it a, a life story, or is it a life as a producer story? Well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I mean, I'm going to very uh, touch on my childhood because my childhood, in a way, plays into my career. The fact that I grew up uh, singing in a choir, uh, my mom was a piano teacher. Uh, um, I was into electronics when I was a kid. I was building like transistor radios, and uh, and it doesn't surprise me that I made a career out of music and electronics. So I, I'm going to touch on that. Uh, and and my career is basically in, in three phases. Uh, the first phase is uh, when I got my start in Philadelphia with a sound company called Festival Group. And I worked my way up into a sound mixer in the late 60s. And by the end of the 60s, I was mixing sound for Jefferson Starship, for Eric Clapton with Dirk and the Dominoes, for Stevie Winwood in Traffic, and Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, all pretty much major tours at that time, and other artists. And uh, by the end of the 60s, I kind of decided, uh, I took Chris Blackwell up on an offer to uh, move to London and work at Island Studios, because Chris had uh, Stevie Winwood in traffic, and he, he, um, he was their manager, and we were on tour together. So uh, I had a conversation with him and, you know, in a station wagon one time, and I told him that, you know, I'd love to get into the studio and and. and and take my performance chops, my knowledge, and convert them into learning how to how that relates to recording. And so that's how I eventually moved to London in 1970. And uh, by 73, I was the engineer in quadrophenia and physical graffiti and and et cetera. Yeah, just just a, a couple of those unknown albums, right? No, so. Um, well, bad company, yeah. Yeah, bad company. Yeah. So, so before we get into those, when do you see this book coming out? And and is it a, is it a tell-all uh, of you know sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or is it just really this is the story of lights out, this is the story of obsession, this is the story of modern times, this is, you know, is it one of these down and dirties, take no prisoners, or is it just really no, this this these are anecdotes of these moments in time and these albums and these artists. Yes. 
<laughs> yes. Right. Uh, you you know, you know, for years, people have been, uh, you know, I meet people and they don't know who I am. And I and they say, oh, what do you do? I record producer. Who, who have you worked with? And they go, what was it like to work with Leonard Skinner? Or what was it like to work with, you know, uh, this one or that one? And uh, I'm doing a, a book on what it was like to work with all these people. And uh, and I'm not leaving anything out as far as it goes. Uh, it's not going to be a, 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 a it's not going to be a technical book about an engineer. Uh, as far as uh, you know, I might make some notes, and it's not going to be about what kick drum mic I used on uh, John Bonham. It's going to be a book about relationships with artists and uh, with my life thrown in there. And uh, uh, there's just such a variety of artists from Streisand to Ozzy to, to talk about uh, that, you know, it's, I think it's going to make for very interesting reading. And of course, that'll be out in, in 2019 or 2020. Well, I think, I think hopefully at the end of 2019, I think, I think that it may, may be more, more to early 2020. Good. Okay. So it that, just that... depends right now, right, right now we're working on it. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm not it, exactly sure on, on the answer on that. Yeah, it's going to be an absolutely fascinating tale because, you know, you, you look at the albums that you were talking about, Physical Graffiti, Quadrophenia, the UFO stuff, that dominated sort of the 70s style and era in classic rock. I mean, of course, it was rock back then. Uh, and then you go on to Heart and, and Damn Yankees and Kiss and stuff in the 80s, and, and then you re-dominate a different thing with a... Um, but okay, let, let me ask you this, because uh, some folks, you, you hear audio engineer or engineer on an album and you hear record producer and some folks go, Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's good. How would you differentiate it for a listener who doesn't understand, you know, what does, what is job number one for the producer and what sort of job number one for an engineer? Well, uh, the job number one for an engineer is to get some decent sounds and, uh, and record something, uh, uh properly. But an engineer producer can have a vision of of what this band should sound like, and is more on top of creating a sound for the band. Not that an engineer alone can't do that. Uh, I was uh, I did not growing through my career or going through my career. I did not work for a lot of producers. Uh, I was working with bands that were producing or producing themselves. Uh, like Jimmy Page or Pete Townsend, or with Bad Company, they they band produced it. But uh, you know they were in the in the studio, and I was in the control room. And so you become uh, the, the the producer, uh, not in name. Uh, certainly, uh, I wasn't a royalty artist with those artists, but but um, you kind of uh, with my musical background and my my uh, again cr- uh, uh, combining. Uh, uh, my electronics background with my musical background, it was a, a perfect thing for me to be a producer engineer. It, yeah, it really was. Um, okay, so a band calls you up, whether it's Hard or whether it's Kiss or whether it's you know uh, John Waite, and they say you know the Babies, and they say, okay, we want to hire you for uh, our album. What's your number one concern? Is it, can I get this band to where they need to go? Is it, that's not my style of music? You know, when you decide to go get on a, on the job, is it 
musical choice? Is it artist choice? Is it a challenge? What, what's your first thought of, okay, I can go work with them because I have some ideas. I know what I can do. You know, where, where do you sort of go through your head first before you accept the job? Well, uh, I think that, you know, will I be able to make this into something? Uh, you know, is it my style of music? Do they have, what, what are the songs like? This is probably the very first thing. Do I like the songs? Uh, do I think that they'd be, depending on the time period, right for radio? Because radio changed a lot in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And uh, I've been pretty quiet since then. But uh, the, the, the 80s were mostly contemporary hit radio, CHR. And you had to kind of like drive the stuff to, to that format. You had to have a single. Then you had the, you know, album-oriented rock, the AOR <clears throat> stations. Uh, and that was your, your rock kind of stuff. So you had to, you had to really juggle both. And so um, as an engineer in the 70s, I was just working for known bands that had already made it, uh, mostly. And I didn't really have to think about it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, uh, not take a call from Led Zeppelin, right? No, of course not. Yeah, of course you have to take a call from Led Zeppelin. Um, <laughs> let me, let me look at some of the albums here. <clears throat> of course, Strangers in the Night, the UFO album. It is talked about as being one of the best live albums. You have Mike Klink, uh, working with you as an assistant engineer, uh, let me talk to you first about that relationship, because Mike went on and did Guns N' Roses and had a whole successful career. Um, how important was it or, or to have a team where you're sort of locked in on the production side? Can you just sort of have a random engineer or did you and Mike really have some kind of special relationship where he was able to learn from you and then move on to Guns N' Roses? All right. Well, let me back up a little bit from that, because uh by 1975 in England, I had been working for a, a company for Pete Townsend called Track Plan. And I had built studios for Ronnie Wood at his house. And the faces, that was before he moved over to the Rolling Stones. The faces were doing a tour of the U.S. And the record plant was, uh, there were remote trucks were recording the tour. It ultimately was the last faces with Rod Stewart tour. And um, they came over, I think Woody invited them over to London and I was working at Woody's studio at his house and they met me and they almost immediately offered me a job as the chief engineer uh, of record plant. And it was mostly because uh, Gary Kelgren, the one of the owners was not in good shape physically and he couldn't do, he was heavily into alcohol and drugs and and Chris was pushing for him to you know not work as hard, and so uh, it was at a time when I uh, was thinking about coming back to the states. I'd been there five years. I had a great resume at that point, uh, and they offered me uh, a, a deal I couldn't resist. You know, and I came over as the as the chief engineer of the record plant, which at, at that point was three studios in L.A. and two studios in in Sausalito. I had already produced a couple of things like with Tim Lizzie and another couple of bands. So I was already on my way to being a producer engineer as well as just an engineer. And uh, uh, Mike Clink was an assistant 
at the record plant. And uh, we worked together on a couple of things, and I just decided to keep them. <laughs> I was the engineer. He was the assistant. In other words, he would set up the mics. He would run the tape machine. He would get the tapes. He would do all of that kind of stuff. And uh, that's how you learned your craft in those days. Uh, I mean, you could, you could have gone to a school, too, and there, there are still are schools. But Mike uh, did what I did. He started off learning from other people. And um, so Mike learned a lot from me. And we did, I don't know, 15 albums together in, in the late 70s. And, and to, by the mid-80s, I don't remember uh, what year he did Guns N' Roses. But he would take over albums for me, too, when I left. Uh, I, I would have a disagreement with a record company. I remember in 1980, I did an album with Survivor. And uh, we had a, I had a, a dispute with the record company. I left the album and he finished it. And from that, he got Eye of the Tiger because they liked him. And, you know, uh, they did call me back up in 1984 to do uh, a song for Karate Kid called Moment of Truth. And I got back in their good graces from that. And I went on to do two more albums, one called Vital Signs which had three hit singles on it. So um, the time with Clink was, I guess, from 76 to 85, you know, where I worked with him a lot. Now, I, I only stayed with the record plant as an employee for a year or so because I didn't want to be tied down to just that studio, even though I loved the studio and I loved the Sausalito facility. Um, but I used to work there a lot. And so I would, uh, you know, work there, even though I wasn't actually getting uh, uh, a paycheck. And um, so that's that's this pretty much the story with Mike. And he evolved from that into his his own career. Yeah, and it was it was well. In fact, it was two remarkable careers. All right, so so so, so since since we're backing up, we'll get to strangers in a second. Let, let's start off then at nightlife with. Well, with... let me just let me just. I can I can I can throw in what happened with strangers. Okay. Um, in fact, a, a little anecdote here. I was mixing strangers, and next door to the record plant in L.A. was a little French restaurant called Entourage, and I was in there having lunch. And over the music came doobie doobie doo, stranger in the night. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, what a great title for that, for UFO, for this album. And so I changed it to Strangers in the Night from Stranger in the Night and ran it past the band who loved it and the record company who loved it. And uh, we even, I think, because I did three albums for UFO in, in the late 70s. I think they even rented uh, the uh, planetarium at Griffith Park for the for the uh, launch party, which was pretty cool. Which was very cool. But, so uh, yeah. But I'll, so yeah. let me just talk to you about capturing the live sound because on obsession and 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 the story is or the myth is or the or the, what the, the reality of it is, mm. you you rent out this postal facility and you try right. to have sort mm. of an empty you know an empty concert hall kind of situation and capture the live sound and 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 I'll talk to you about that first. But but the next album obviously is Strangers. Was that the thinking from the record company and the band? And they said, listen. We we try to capture the live sound. How about we actually go do it? I mean, was that sort of the 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 arc of that 
conversation of like, okay, we tried with Obsession to get a live sound, like, but this band is a oh, live I think, band. I, th- I, I, I think you're reading too much into it. Okay. That's what everybody did. Everybody did. They got a little bit of a, a foothold. You know, in, in this country, uh, Chicago was a big area for UFO. They had their, their big areas. And uh, uh, once they, because they, they had done three or four albums before I got hold of them uh, with Lights Out. And um, I went to London to do Lights Out. And I decided to add some strings and horns to them to, to change it up a little bit. And that worked out great. That really did. Uh, but I think everybody in those days did a few studio albums and then did a live album. Uh, if their tours were, were good, if they, if they could cut it, you know, if they were, and certainly with the musicians that uh, UFO had with Schenker, et cetera. I mean, it was uh, uh, great, great live stuff. So I don't think it was, uh, it was probably planned out by the record company, but it, that's generally what people did. Okay, so let me ask you about that, because you said that on the previous albums, you bring in strings and you bring in stuff. How involved is a producer? How involved were you as a producer in crafting the songs beyond just what they brought in, you know, and sometimes even changing what the band is by adding strings or by adding? Were you more of a hands-on sort of what I would call more like a Bob Ezrin kind of producer that comes in and says, hey, I've got choirs and I've got horns and I've got this? Or did you just sit down to the band and say, okay, well, you guys want to make this kind of record? Well, I will work within those parameters and make this kind of record. You know, how, how involved were you in, in the overall finish? Well, uh, I, always, always, I mean, actually, UFO is a really good uh, band to talk about. Right. Because I had listened to Leo Lyons' production of the couple of albums before uh, Lights Out, and they were good. And I, I love the, you know... Uh, uh, I love the band. And when I went to London, I wanted to change it up a little bit. I, I wanted to make it still heavy. You can you, you listen to love to love. I mean, it's still, even though it's got some uh, strings and horns, it's got a contrabass clarinet that's going, Wah! you know, it's like, a, it's like a power chord. So uh, I had the right uh, arrangers and, uh, and the right people to do that. Uh, but uh, my job is really to go in and take their songs and make something of them. And in the case of UFO, Michael Schenker, who was the main writer of all the riffs, but he, he was, you know, he's German and he's not, he, he wasn't writing with the band. He was writing it on a cassette player in his house and he didn't write verses and choruses. So uh, somebody had to come in and, take these themes that he had and, and, and uh, rearrange them. And that's what I did with UFO on all three, on both the albums. I rearranged them. We got into a, re- a rehearsal studio and want, we try this good idea. Okay. That doesn't work. We try that and uh, make it into a, a, a proper four or five minute song. Uh, and uh, that, that was uh, uh, the other difficult part actually with UFO was that Phil Mogg, uh, wrote some great lyrics, but he was always doing it at the last minute. And, uh, you know, a producer likes to know what the song's about. And when he's recording it, it helps It helps conjure up visions of, of, of what the soundscape should be like. 
And uh, so that was a little bit difficult to, uh, to kind of you know, to get over because we just had working titles and he would just mumble through the verses just so we had a, a, a melody line, but without finished lyrics. So, you know, it was a, it was a, a there's just one instance with UFO of, of having to go in and, and, and rearrange things. A lot of bands will come with material that just really needs intros or outros, uh, or things are too long or too short. Uh, and it's a fairly easy job to, to do that. Uh, there's some rearranging, like with the Survivor. Uh, uh, there's a song called "I Can't Hold Back" that I totally rearranged uh, because I thought it was I was maximizing the hook on it. And um, so, even with great songwriters, they all need a producer. And so, um, yeah, I guess each job is different. It really right? is. So, so let me ask you about this because there are some bands, especially some of the the later day heritage acts you know, in the last 10 or 15 years where they self-produce, they, they, they take over everything and, you know, either the lead singer or somebody says, I'm, do you think it's essential to have outside ears and have an outside producer or are, is it okay for a band to say, you know what, we're just going to do this ourselves. We know our sound. Personally, I think that you need outside ears. And I'm assuming since right. you're a producer, you probably agree with me, but, but what, well, do, what I, do you think I, of that? Okay. Well, I, th I think I think you're right, and uh, I think that there's certain times that producers, have, uh, you know, can get away with that. Uh, 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 songwriters can produce themselves. I think Stevie Wonder, as a perfect example, George Michael, another perfect example of guys that did everything. Uh, and uh, but uh, but it's always good to have somebody that uh, can uh, give you another perspective, even if you ignore him. <laughs> it's always nice to have somebody uh, sitting there and, uh, 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 you know, gives you a different perspective. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And, and I, I listen to some albums and I'm not going to name bands, but I've listened to some albums and I go, I, I sort of get what they're doing. But if they just had somebody to say, change that guitar part or change, it, it would have been better. And I just like, uh, okay. Um, uh, you know what? I'm, We've got so many things to cover here. I'm just going to go over to Hart for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Hart sure. in 19, uh, what was that, 85, I guess? Hart, Hart was 85? Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, Bad sure. Animals after. Those are right. two of their most successful albums. Uh, folks around the, the, the industry have said, listen, Ron Nevison saved that band. Those two albums, without those two albums, they would have faded. I don't know if, if Ann and Nancy would have faded away. I mean, they are they are still Ann and Nancy Wilson. But talk to me about that time. You know, they come off of Passion Works and they make this album, this hard album that's very commercial friendly, very MTV friendly, very very radio friendly. What was what was it like going into into those sessions? Was it just hey we want to make a real radio friendly album? Was it there's pressure from the record company that if this doesn't sell we're we're done? Was it eh, whatever? What was sort of the 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 going into the heart heart album? Hmm. Well, uh, there was great. You were right. The they were they were they were fading at the time. Absolutely, passion works. What was happening was they, they, they kind of broke up with their boyfriends. Uh, uh, the guitar player that was writing all the great riffs, down, da, 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 
and, and Magic Man and Crazy on You and uh, Barracuda. And uh, Howard Lease was a really good uh, guitar player, and he's been around, still is around, I think, with Bad Company. Um, you know, uh, but he wasn't writing the kind of stuff that got them there in the 70s. I mean, I think that Hart had one of the biggest uh, out-of-the-box albums, except for maybe Boston, in the late 70s. And by the early 80s, uh, they weren't writing the stuff that got them. They were, if you think of Hart, you think of this great chick with her sister, and she had these chops, and she could do Zeppelin, and she could do, but she could also do Dog and Butterfly. She could do these great ballads, and and their stuff was sounding too soft, and it wasn't it wasn't rocking up enough, and and so um, Passion Works was the end for them with Epic, and Don Grierson, who was a great guy, who who just incidentally just passed uh, in the last month or so. Uh, was their A&R guy. He was head of A&R at Capitol. And he said, I will sign you if you agree to do, if we can mutually agree on songs and mutually agree on a producer. And I had a couple of big hits with Survivor with The Search Is Over just in the year before that. And they, uh, Grierson calls me up and he says, Hart, uh, Anna and Nancy are interested in, in talking to you about doing a couple of ballads on their album. And I said, yeah, I'd love to talk to them. So they flew me up to Seattle. We had dinner. It was a great evening. We talked about all that kind of stuff. And the next, I flew back uh, same night. And um, I, I get a call the next morning that uh, they want me to do the whole album. So uh, at this point, they signed with Capital. They had a brand new manager, Trudy Green, and they were they had been like like you said they were fading. And so I, uh, you know, I had a mandate from the record company and from from the management, HK Management, Howard Kaufman and Trudy Green, yep. to to do something with them. And they agreed that uh, they would if they didn't. Uh, it's not my my kind of, uh, you know it's my job to get the thing done and to have hits and to hit all the formats that I can on the radio. And in those, in 1985, I had to have a CHR hit as well as an AOR hit. That was mandate, you know, that was, had to be done. And so, um, they didn't really have the singles, but they had some cool rock stuff. So uh, my job was to kind of, you know, add to their, add to the album with singles. And my manager also manages um, Bernie Toppin. And he handed me a cassette before I was going up to uh, rehearse with Anna and Nancy up at Nancy's house. And uh, on that tape was, uh, was uh, These Dreams. And also, oddly enough, we built this city, <laughs> which the Starship ended up doing, uh, which I thought was you know, a terrible song, personally. Uh, I never would have done that song with Starship. But uh, Nancy loved these dreams. And, you know, on, on the traditional hard albums, Nancy had always had a song. And I was looking for a song for her. Never in a million years did I think it would be, I loved the song, but I didn't think it would be a number one single. But, uh, and it wouldn't have been if there hadn't been two hit singles before it. It ended up being the third third single on that album. 
And so uh, I played it to Nancy. She loved it. And we ended up doing it. And, uh, Grierson found What About Love from Valance, I think, wrote that one. Yeah. And uh, Trudy, Trudy got, uh, got to co-write, got um, um, Holly Knight to co-write Never and another song with them. And so we had an album. We had some great songs, and uh, and uh, it ended up selling ten million records. It 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 was. I just remember dominating up here in Canada. Much music. Those videos. What about love? These it, they were just on all the time. Um, you mentioned the record company and Howard Kaufman, who passed away in the last couple of years himself. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, I've dealt with that that those offices a lot. They, they um, uh, Lori Gorman handled uh, well, the, also, the poison. You know, I did, yeah, I did. I did two albums with Chicago, and yep. I was dealing with that office too. But yeah, yeah, great, absolutely great office. But let me let me ask you: Is your number one role as a producer to satisfy the band or satisfy the record company? Where, where, where does sort of your loyalty lie? Number. Number one role is to drive them up a wall. I'm kidding. That's, no, true, but 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 probably true. Yeah. No, but 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 loyalty wise, you know, if if let's say Nancy comes in and says, "I love these dreams and I want it like this way," and Howard Kaufman or the record company says, "That that song's terrible. You got to get it off the album." Where, where do you sort of? Well, it's got to be. It's political thing at that point, and it's got to be a consensus. Uh, you got to hand the record company something that the promotion department's going to be able to go with. And so, uh, and you know, uh, I think that I do remember, uh, Howard Kaufman coming in to listen to the playback when we had just cut, what about love? The track, which was actually the first single. And he was blown away by just the, the backing track of it. And I think that, that set the whole thing up because it got us that we were in there doing something that's really going to be good. And so, uh, we got him going and, and which was why I invited him down. And, uh, and, and that's always handy, you know, to get them on board as soon as possible. And I was working constantly with Grierson. You know, there was a song that was on Don's desk called if looks could kill. And that was headed for Tina Turner. And I grabbed it. And it, when I played it to Anne and Nancy, they they hated it really because they hated the demo. It was like a you know. But I love the lyric. If looks could kill, you'd be lying on the floor. You'd be begging me, please don't hurt. You know. I mean, I thought that would be great uh, visually for for Anne to do, and uh, and I rocked it up, and it ended up you know doing great. But well, so, it's the number one track times, on the album too. A lot, a lot of times, yeah, a lot of times, you know, uh, when I when I played when I played demos to people, the outside songs, I, I tell them, don't listen to the performance, or don't listen to think of it as notes on on a page, you know. Uh, think about the melody. Don't think about the tempo. Don't think about the treatment. Uh, just think about the song. And, uh, and I said that with, with what about love too, with heart, I said, if, if, if we can, uh, uh, we don't have to do this song if we don't work it up and it, and you guys don't like it. Of course I was lying, 
about that, but I was going to push that song. But, but, you know, that's the kind of way you really have to have to go with it. You know, you have to kind of, uh, try to get them to do it on their own to play it. And, and so that they, they're not thinking about the demo that they just heard and try to make it into their own. Yeah. And just a uh, real quick, uh, you mentioned Jim Valance, of course, uh, I, in, I interviewed him recently. He is, he is absolutely mm-hmm. one of the best songwriters out there. And, uh, oh. No kidding. No uh, kidding. Just absolutely. And I have a part two with him that I haven't uh, released yet. I think I might tag it on to this episode. Just have you and Jim on the same episode because he, he just is uh-huh. spectacular. But um, all right, let, let, let me get away from Kiss, uh, not from Kiss, but from Heart for a second. And let me move over to Kiss. Uh, here we are in uh, 1987. And here's a band that is, I, I don't want to say far removed from their glory days, but there's diminishing returns bon jovi def leppard they're 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 tearing up the new the new kids are tearing up the the scene motley crew and kiss says okay well if we can't beat him we're going to join him we're going to make an album that's hard rock melodic rock radio friendly i happen to love the album right i i know i know some kiss fans go it's too syrupy but you look at a song like uh, turn on the night or even crazy nights which uh, or uh, or uh, my way which was written by bruce turgeon who of course, is Lou Graham's best mm-hmm. friend. What was that like? Because this is a band that y- th- there's more than just making a record. You've got the quote unquote kiss army that sit down and stare and watch everything. And if it ain't perfect, they let you know. Um, and, and kiss is of course trying to do a more MTV slick uh, record. Talk to me about working with them. How how involved are Gene and Paul in this process? Um, is it more that that Paul comes in and says, "This is what you know"? What was that sort of vibe like doing this, knowing that the band is now chasing, if I can say that, Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and that that melodic hard rock scene, not to call it hair metal, uh, of the day? Huh? Didn't well, I load that up uh, properly I, for you? I had- I had you did. I had a, uh, a. I had already had a relationship with Paul Stanley. Uh, I had a meeting with him and met him in the late seventies when they did their solo albums, and I met him up at um, up at Casablanca, uh, and ultimately I didn't do that record for one reason or another. Uh, and then uh, I got a call from him. Uh, in, I guess, 87, I think, or whenever that was that we did it. And um, uh, I agreed to do it. And uh, uh, Paul sent me six or seven songs that were really good. Gene sent me 25 songs. (laughs) In other words, Paul kind of vetted the songs before he sent them to me. Gene just sent me everything. Uh, There was a song there, one song I remember looking at. It was called, I Want to Put a Log in Your Fireplace. You know, uh, he, he sent me all these songs and, uh, I, I picked, uh, the songs that I thought would, you know, should go on the album. And we, uh, um, I can't, I guess we did it in LA. Yeah. We did the album in LA. And so I, I, I love those guys. Uh, I had a great time with them. Eric Carr was a great drummer and, and Bruce Kulick couldn't be a nicer uh, and a terrific guitar player. What is there not to like? Uh, they were in a, in a spot. They were in a spot right then where they were competing. 
and 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 Paul was writing with the writers, like the Bon Jovi kind of writers. Uh, and uh, you mentioned a bunch of songs. I was my biggest disappointment was Reason to Live. I thought that that would have been a smash ballad, rock ballad song. That's funny. That I was, was I was just about to ask you that. I was just going to say um, because up here uh, in you Canada, you mentioned my way. You mentioned Crazy yeah. Nights, but Reason to Live was a song that I was most disappointed that that didn't hit hit the. Uh, I, I I honestly don't think that the record company and I talked to Paul about this. I talked to Paul about this on February first. They played Portland, Oregon, and I live up in the Pacific Northwest. And I went to see the Sam, and I, I, I talked to Paul after the show, or before the show, and uh, we had this conversation, and I said, uh, yeah, Reason to Live was my, my biggest disappointment. And he started going on about the record company, really wasn't really that interested in them at that point. And uh, I think radio stations also, when they saw Kiss coming, they, they probably didn't, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure. But that was a disappointment, and I, I, I think, I think listening back to that record, I could have rocked it up on the mix a little bit more. If I, if I, I would. In fact, I was thinking of, of uh, contacting Paul again and asking him if they ever decide to to remix that. I want to do it. Oh, uh, I want, I that would a, be spectacular. A, and, and by the way, yeah, just. Uh, uh, as an aside to Reason to Live, in 2013, uh, a Canadian band, Honeymoon Suite, redid the track, uh, and it sounds great. And here, here's where it connects to you. Michael Foster and Bill Leverty of Firehouse actually play on it. So you've got half of Firehouse and half of Honeymoon Suite doing Reason to Live. And it's up on iTunes and stuff. I, I would I would definitely recommend checking yeah. But okay, let me ask you this about, about Bruce Kulick. Because sure. you mentioned Bruce being very nice. Sure. And, and and I love uh, Bruce. I'm friends with Bruce. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have worked with Schenker and Jakey e. Lee and, and the Wilsons. And blah, blah, like just these phenomenal guitar players. But I always felt that Bruce, because he came in to kiss as the replacement or as not Ace Fraley, that he never got his due. So as a producer who has worked with great talent, you know, does he, did he deserve a better fate? And is he more sort of guitar hero-ish than, than, than history has recorded? Cause he, he, he's a great player. Oh, he's, he's a phenomenal player. I, I don't know if he's been, uh, you know, you, you mentioned something about the kiss army, about how they are. Yeah. I mean, I took a lot of heat from the kiss army over, over that, that record. Uh, it just didn't follow their format and we weren't trying to follow. We were, look, the kids had taken their makeup off. They were trying something new. They were trying to, and not a new direction, but they were trying something new. And, uh, uh, they hadn't just taken their makeup off, but they had new members in the band. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) And, but, uh, uh, but Bruce, Bruce, yeah, well, Bruce is ter- terrific. Uh, I, I just had a great time with him. Uh, you know, there's he's one of my favorite guitar players, I think, and I've worked with, uh, you know, pretty much all of them. Uh, maybe my, the only one that I liked even better than all those guys was Key Marcello on Europe, with Europe. Key is great. That, he was that... actually, and uh, he's fantastic, and, and, uh, um, the album I did with also with, uh, 
Vince Neil. Um, uh, 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 guitar. Steve Stevens. Yeah, Billy Idol's guitar. Steve, he was great too. A very innovative guy. Yeah, in fact, that, but uh, uh, yeah. I do want to get to that because that that's a great album, and I also want to talk quickly about uh, Damn mm. Yankees. But let let me finish on Kiss. Sure. Here here's the one thing. Okay. Being a member of the Kiss Army myself, I've you know I loved Kiss right. ever since I was whatever. Uh, there is this yeah. song Sword and Stone that was meant to be on Crazy Nights, and the the story is well Ron didn't like it, so it didn't make it, and it went off on Shocker and. Paul Dean of Loverboy did it, and uh, what was that German band? Bonfire did it. Uh, a good version, by the way. What what was sort of the story on this 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 mythical mm. sword and stone song? Why why was it mm. not good enough for Crazy Nights? Was it you that decided that? Was the band decided that? Did the record company say, "Hey, was it just not the time for it"? I don't remember. Ah, I honestly don't remember the song. And if it didn't make it, I don't remember. I just remembered one of the songs that I, that the Gene, because it, uh, because of the silly title that it had. Uh, I don't well, the remember. The log in your fireplace. It, there's right, but but uh, you know, there's only room. Uh, we're still at the point here where there's only so much room uh, you can put on an on an album. You're still selling a fair amount of vinyl. You can only get uh, forty minutes uh, uh, on an on an album. So a lot of times it was down to what this, what songs were work best? Which songs were going to be singles? Obviously, you want to make sure they're on there. And uh, I don't remember the, specifically that song, but uh, yeah, I, I can't help you on that one. I don't remember. Okay. I've, I've heard about this rumor. The, the rumor <laughs> that that, that you denied it, us it a song. Been me. <laughs> yeah, it, could, right. it could have been me. But uh, any, if I had denied you any song, you would have been upset. Well, of course. You know, there was a couple of there was a couple of extra songs on the first Bad Co album uh, was that there really? eventually came out. Oh yeah, there's two extra songs. Uh, um, Superstar Woman was one of them that we had cut that I was disappointed that wasn't on the album. But then again, we only could get nine songs on on to get a good hot vinyl cut, you know. And uh, so that's the way it goes. There, there are, Don't there think are so... about that these days because. Once uh, CDs came out, we went from uh, 40 minutes to, you know, 80 minutes <laughs> or 70 minutes, 74 minutes, whatever it is. You know, so. I, I'm looking at the bad company now because they did a, oh, here it is. They did a re-release mm. in 2015. Yeah. And Superstar Woman is well, there. Yeah. There you right. go. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, and, so I, I did hear it came out. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, that was one of the ones. It was. Another, there was another that we cut, you know, we just cut, you know, the, the, the bad coast sessions were, uh, not meant to be demos, but in fact, you know, if I look at the tapes that I have, I still have some, uh, uh, two track tapes of rough mixes of that. And it's got Paul Rogers band on there. They didn't, I remember, uh, being out at Headley Grange, which is the, the, the house that we had rented, uh, you know, to do the album, it's actually rented to do physical graffiti, but uh, the bad company was being uh, managed by Peter Grant, uh, Zeppelin's manager, and he, you know, just said, you know, well, do these guys first, <laughs> or something like that. Remember, and uh, so uh, uh, when it finally, we had finally done the twelve songs or whatever it was, eleven songs. I think nine made the album. 
they were anxious to to kick it off on their uh, Swan Song label, which is their first, I think, the first thing on Swan Song, or one of the first things. And uh, I remember them being in the kitchen, uh, forcing them to make up their minds about a name because they had to get a, a album cover done and they had to get you know all that stuff. And they just have ended up using Bad Company because of the song Bad Company. You know, thinking that, wow, bad company, man, bad means good in America, right? <laughs> so that's how that happened. And, and, and what a great, um, what a great, I, I, I in fact, uh, interviewed Simon Kirk about last year or two years ago. Just great mm-hmm. stories. But let, let me just quickly, because uh, we're going to try to keep it to an hour and we've yeah. got 15 minutes left. Go so, so let me, let me get back to okay. sort of more of the, the hard rock heavy metal. You've got the ultimate right, sin. Right, right, right. Working right. with Ozzy Osbourne, uh, right. Bark at the Moon comes out, and now you, you know you're working with Jakey e. Lee, and and, and the, the band's moving forward. Um, first of all, when it comes to the ultimate sin and and working with Ozzy, does it come down to sort of what Ozzy wants, what Sharon wants, or what the record company wants? Uh, Ozzy really didn't wasn't that involved in it, to tell you the truth, right? But, you know, I, I, went, I was actually in London that summer uh, to do some Joe Cocker stuff uh, on that uh, Joe Cocker record uh, that summer of 85. And um, I uh, had a meeting with Ozzy and, uh, and Sharon, and I just ended up staying and doing the, uh, the album. And we worked at Townhouse Studios, I remember. And uh, I loved their stuff. They had, it, they had it pretty much ready to go. Uh, there was some peculiar requests. I remember Jakey e. Lee asking me if we could start his his guitar overdubs at midnight, you know. And I said, <laughs> "Look, we can't. This is a recording studio with with staff. We can't keep them up all night. You know, there's two other studios here. It's not going to work." So we, we kind of like agreed to start at six, go from like six at night to two in the morning. Uh, as a producer, I have to be able to try to get the best out of somebody. And if their best is it is late, uh, I'm okay with that, but not midnight. <laughs> That's, I'm not okay with that. And, and so uh, that was one thing, but J- Jakey e. Lee was fantastic. I mean, another great, great player and uh, totally into the whole thing. And just a terrific player. Uh, when it came to do the vocals, however, Ozzy was a no show. And uh, I was very concerned. He would, he kept not coming when we were supposed to come. So I went to Sharon. And I said, you know, this is not working, getting him to come in and do the vocals. I said, I want to take him somewhere. I said, where does he not like to go? And she said, oh, he hates frogs. He hates them frogs. And uh, I said, okay, well, that's where we're going. So I got a studio in Paris. Uh, and dragged him and one of the roadies, a, a kind of, you know, uh, a, a big, strong, brute guy to look after Ozzy. And uh, we, the three of us went to, to London for two weeks. And, um, and then over was, to Paris. I had a, a, I, I'm sorry, to Paris. Right, to Studio Davout. Davout, you're exactly right. Correct. And, uh, and that studio was actually on the other side of Paris from where we were staying. And we ended up, uh, the first time 
we took a limo over there. It took like an hour and a half to get to the studio. I said, like, this is not going to work with a three hour commute. So we started taking the, uh, the train, the underground, the Metro. And so the three of us were taking the Metro. Uh, that was fun to the studio. And it was like a 15 minute, uh, 20 minute Metro ride. And then we got it done. He, he would, he wanted to come home. He turned up to the studio and, and, uh, it was a great studio. Uh, uh, and, uh, that's how I get the vocals done with Ozzy on that. That's hilarious. So, so essentially he's, I know he, he, he just does not want to walk around the town. So he's like, all right, I'll just go to the studio instead of walk. There's no parties going on in Paris for me. So. Right. Right. He didn't oh, that's like, hilarious. He, yeah. That's I know he, he, and that's what you need to do in a situation like that, you know, have a captive audience. Uh, and, uh, because he, he was too comfortable at home. Uh, hanging out with friends and drinking and stuff to, to remember to come to the studio. And something he didn't want to do the vocals. I, I don't want to paint that kind of picture, but it was much better uh, have, you know, having him one-on-one away from his home. So do you think that that, and this might sound like a completely pedestrian question, but do you think that it, that affected the timbre of his voice where maybe there was a little more anguish or anger in, in, in the spitting out of the lyrics, like a secret loser and thank God for the bomb? Like, do you think that it sort of worked him up or Ozzy was going to deliver the same vocal performance, whatever studio you got him in? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think that it got him sort of well, edgy and more like, all right, let's, let's, uh, secret loser, you know? Well, here, here's, here's an interesting thought, you know, uh, Ozzy had always double-tracked his vocals. You know what that is, where you sing it twice. And, yep. and it kind of, to me, it sanitizes it. It's a sound that people have had, but it's, it, it takes the emotion out of it. And I was determined not to do a lot of double-tracking. I mean, I did some on like choruses and stuff like that, but it's really the first album that I know of that Ozzy did without everything being totally double-tracked. And uh, I worked really hard to get him, get the vocals to have expression and have feeling and have a vibe. And uh, I think maybe being away from home helped out. It certainly helped him, uh, helped his attendance a whole lot. <laughs> you know, exactly. Uh, it's really hard to remember, you know, uh, 50 years ago, right? Uh, that, 40 that, years ago. Whatever that's hilarious. And, and such a great album. Yeah. But all right, let me since since we're 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 sort of yeah. obsessed with music and, and and we'll try to keep it to ten. Yeah. Hopefully, we can get through obsession and expose. But if not, we will start off with obsession. Um, okay, so so we know the story. The story's out there. You go to this empty postal sorting facility, and well, let me just say, yeah. let, me, let me just say that the record the record plant Studio C had a fire in it. Okay, and that was the, the more of the more of the big drum room. Uh, and it was being rebuilt. And so I, I had made a lot of albums with the remote truck. In fact, I built one in an airstream for Ronnie Lane of the faces that I used for Quadrophenia, that I used for that company that I used for Led Zeppelin and that I used for the babies. And, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and so I was used to doing that. I like doing that. <clears throat> Excuse me. People have asked me over the years, how come I never had my own studio? And I said, well, then I'd have to use it. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to go and do stuff like this. And so, um, uh, yeah. So I, I, I looked around for a house to rent or something that, and this property came up and it was just an empty 
It was right in Beverly Hills, an empty, uh, big sorting room for a post office. And I, I, you know, that's where I uh, cut the obsession and mix it at the record plant in the mixing room, I think. And, and and talk to me about some of the sounds you were able to get, because one of the other things that comes up is, and you correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, but all his leads, you, you, you blew them out through Marshall stacks and all the rhythms, you blew them out through these sort of miniature pig noses just to uh, talk to me about some of that trick. Well, not trickery, well, you, but some you of that, 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 you the technique. Backwards. You, you have that. You have that backwards. Okay. So you know correct. what Shanker the, the way Shanker ha, does his his lead sound is he puts it through a wah wah, but he doesn't wah it. He just finds he keep he he moves the pedal up and down on the wah wah until he gets a tone that he likes. Now anybody that's ever used a wah wah knows that there's no like it's all mid range. There's no top and there's no bottom, and so. Uh, if you put that through a Marshall, it like spits and, you know, uh, it, 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 it kind of, uh, sustains it, but it, it's, I, I found a pig nose to be uh, better because, uh, it didn't have all of the, uh, uh, artifacts, I guess you would call them with it. And I didn't use that for obsession. I don't think, I think I definitely did the leads on lights out with that. And of course, I didn't use it live, but um, yeah, I did use it for quite a few of its leads. And on obsession, what was sort of the the theory, or, or what was sort of the the hope in, in capturing his sound? Because uh, you know, again, Michael Schenker live is this beast on stage, and he's larger than life. Was that sort of the? Can we sort of? take magic and, and put it in a bottle was that kind of uh, kind of the the approach for the guitar tone and the guitar sound of obsession is to see to, can we just grab this guy well, off the you stage? Just, well you just let him go right you know you just you don't need any uh, a guy like that you just let him do it and um uh, the only thing that i like i said with with that kind of stuff i i had to rearrange his 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 songs quite a bit but uh, you let just let him run, you know. I mean, I, I did. I used to do comps on on people, which is a composite, where if they're doing a solo, I do up to a dozen tracks or takes, and then listen through. And of course, if you got one magical that was great from all, all the way front to back, uh, I would just use it. But but uh, a lot of times I'd use a piece from each one. I do the same thing with vocals. Yeah, the it's good old a common practice. Okay, yeah. so, so let me ask you about that real quick because back in the day, when you were splicing tape literally with a, a razor blade and you were comping stuff together, I mean, it was labor intensive, painstaking. How different is it now in this day and age with Pro Tools where you can just fly stuff in and you just click a button and you just move the mouse or the cursor? Um, you know, how, how, how different is the, 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 the whole art? of producing these days? Wow. That's a a whole hour. Right. Because it really (laughs) is. I mean, splicing. Okay. Well, Well, firstly, firstly, you know, when we went to digital, you know, and I had, I used one of the very first digital uh, machines. 3M had a digital machine uh, uh, in 1979 with, uh, or 1980. I don't remember exactly which, 
with uh, Jefferson Starship. I used to, uh, one of the first digital machines. So when we went digital, uh, it was a great tool because you could, you could, you had a lot more tracks. You probably, the first digital we had was 32 and then went to 48 and that was on tape, you know, even that was digital. Uh, and of course with uh, Pro Tools, uh, it's an infinite amount of tracks. So, which can be a bad thing too. But um, yeah, we didn't have to uh, 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 cut any tape with digital, uh, whereas uh, I would splice mixes together uh, with analog, and I would splice splice the two-inch tape to take backing tracks uh, and and cut them together. Uh, yeah, it was a lot well, of work. Okay. So uh, let, let me finish on this question, and and I know people are like, well, you didn't do nightlife, you didn't do exposed, you didn't do uh, firehouse, you, but have we sanitized music with the in the digital age where because th- there was a certain magic of Black Sabbath going in and nine days later there's an album there's a, there was a magic about whatever Thin Lizzy doing an album in like two weeks and 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 the mistakes became part of the charm and the the off key and the off beat and the too fast and the temp. Like all those things that you sit down and you go through Pro Tools and go, well, I can just click that out. And I can... Wasn't that part of the charm and the warmth of a record that, that, that it was sort of, you know, imperfect? Well, with, with any, any format, there's good and bad. And yeah, that's the bad part. But there's a lot of good parts. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do. Uh, you, you get a little complacent with Pro Tools because you can do so much. And uh, you're using a lot of samples, perhaps, which are really other people's things. I mean, it was really cool when you recorded everything, and I have to say. And uh, in the early days, not only for me, uh, thinking back on it, not only did I record everything, I didn't have samples to use, but I also built the recording studio that we were working in. So it was like, you know, it was really uh, quite good. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, well, the good old days, I, I, I would say. But uh, mm-hmm. on that, we, we, we have reached an hour, and, and so we will we will perhaps reconvene and, and talk about all these other bands. But listen, when you when you have your name on, what is it, 328 or some incredible amount of <laughs> singles and, and compilations and albums, an hour is just not going to cover it. I mean, we, we can't even mention <laughs> all. If I just started reading the credits, that would take me an hour but uh, there you go, and uh, right, well, right. thank you, thank you so much, and 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 if we can, we we shall reconvene and do a part two. But but thank you for the music. I would I would love it. Yeah, I and, would love and, it. And thank yeah, you for being, thank you for being the the, thank you for being involved in the soundtrack for many of our lives, myself, the listeners, and all that. Uh, you know, you, you look back, right. Thin Lizzy and UFO and Vince and Kiss and. You know, as yeah. we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so, so much for, for all that. And thank you for today. Okay. All right. Thank you, too. Cheers. No, no. Bye-bye. Cheers.